I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I saw a film today, oh boy. Come on, show me the magic. Can I take you out to the picture? Well, Hello and welcome to the Beatles Films Podcast. I am Matt Looker. I'm Ed Williamson. And we're both professional film writers and Fab Four fans and each week we discuss a different movie about, starring or inspired by the Beatles. This week that film is 2017's 50 Years Ago Today, Sgt Pepper and Beyond. A documentary made to celebrate the 50th anniversary of what is often called the greatest album of all time. So does the film do justice to the album? Does it explain that it's a concept album that isn't really a concept album, but really still is a concept album? Uh, And does any of this matter when, as is assumed, we'll just spend the time tapping our feet to all the great songs that make up the album, as they are no doubt featured heavily throughout the film? Uh, Ed, do you want to cover off that last point? (laughs) (laughs) Right, we've got into that straight away. (laughs) Uh, fair enough, because um, it is uh, it, it is really the crux of the whole thing, and and the crux of this entire podcast episode, as we're about to talk about in, in punishing detail. <laughs> uh, so I, I I I reviewed this film back in 2017 when it came out. Hmm. Uh, I think I was slightly too harsh on it, uh, which I think we'll come to later. But I will I will interject and say I, I read your review after watching the film. Uh, I don't think you were harsh on it at all. I think okay. I, I think it exactly chimes with how I feel about the film. But, okay, but by all means, uh, you know, retroactively correct yourself. <laughs> yeah, this is a public mea culpa. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, it, no, I, I think I was a little bit too harsh on it, but uh, the main criticisms uh, I still hold. And of course, the, the chief one is this is a documentary about Sgt. Pepper as an album, which does not have the rights to use um, any of the actual music, any Beatles music at all. Uh, or, I mean, at least I'm going to assume they didn't have the rights. Uh, if not, it was a very odd artistic choice. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely was, yeah. yeah. Um, I think I, I think the, the problem then extends to a greater issue that I have with the documentary, which is that largely the film doesn't really know what story it's trying to tell. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think that's because it, we know that it's a documentary that was released to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the album. By not having the music to help it do that, the film is largely made up of storytelling, anecdotes, and context setting mm-hmm. around that film's release. Yeah. But the result is then that you're just concentrating on a relatively arbitrary period of time in the Beatles' career. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and then it loses its sense of purpose, I think. Yeah. I think I think you don't. You, the film doesn't really know if it's not going to be about Sergeant Pepper's. It doesn't really know what it's about. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, so it it, it does. So kind of the period we're covering is sort of mid to late '66 when they stop touring and they go into the studio. Um, then when they record Sergeant Pepper, there are lots of bits from 1967, mm-hmm. not magical mystery tour. Or yep. hello, goodbye, or anything like that. That's not really in there. Uh, then it's Maharishi, uh, Rishikesh, and that's kind of it. Uh, Epstein's death, I'd say as well. Yeah, There's a lot of time so. on 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 that. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, obviously. And I think that um, I mean, straight off the bat, by the way, the the first sort of text on screen says August 1966, uh, the start of an incredible year. Mm-hmm. Which, <laughs> first of all, I'll be honest, I had to. Reread a couple of times right. to understand because it's like, well, it's August. It's not the start of an incredible right. year. It's you're halfway through it. Yeah, we're still and then I was the obviously you're talking calendar, about right. It yeah, just... and I'm guessing that the film is suggesting that August to August. Uh, yeah, I suppose. But yeah, then yeah. what the film immediately does then is talk about their time um, touring two months before. Yes, because <laughs> then you have footage of them, uh, you know, on tour, and the text comes up on screen, July 1966. Mm-hmm. So already it's like okay, so you've already gone back two months. So you you set out this is the start of the of, of an amazing year, but you've gone back two months in time in order to be able to set up that context. Um, and and the first big issue that the documentary deals with is the uh, be, the Beatles are bigger than Jesus quote. Yeah. Um, I think that. I mean, first of all, I think that immediately this doesn't feel like it is leading to or it doesn't feel like this is part of the Sergeant Pepper narrative but I'm probably being a bit too harsh there because I think what what the what the film is trying to do is set the context of why the Beatles stopped touring yeah and then that obviously led to them having more studio time and being able to focus on 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 recording which yeah. I yeah. I understand but it spends a lot of time on this particular quote and it and it feels like um, we're already into just talking about major Beatles talking points, yeah. rather than rather than focusing on on a on a particular strand. Yeah, maybe, and and, and also 
that perhaps what it's doing is that the things it discusses are the things for which it has enough footage to discuss. Yeah, that's fair. That, that may be it. I mean, you know, the bigger than Jesus stuff, you know, there's there's John doing his public apology at the press conference and there's the KKK guy, okay. uh, you know, and, and people jumping up and down on records in the street. Um, so maybe that's it. But I, I, I think, it, in fairness to it, it is taking... It, it is setting the scene. It, it is odd that it says, you know, August and then goes back two months. But it um, it is setting the scene for why they stopped touring um, why, and then, you know, why they're making Sergeant Pepper. So I, I, I think that's reasonable, but it, it it does highlight a really odd scattergun approach yeah. to what it's showing you. And and also the order in which it's showing you it, which is yeah, kind of all over the place. That is very much all over the place. I yeah. think I think going back to the Jesus Christ thing, I think that first of all it's well actually yeah, first of all, I think that um it's really strange to have the talking heads on this documentary talk about that moment, obviously no doubt a hugely significant moment in the in the Beatles career. Um and talk about it in a way that they seem to be arguing to the actual quote itself. The, the like, merits of it. Like, yeah, the yeah. merits of the quote. Like, yeah, were yeah. the Beatles actually bigger than Jesus? Right, exactly. Which is weird. Like, not not talk about the how the quote came to be, not not talk about the, the context of the interview that was given at the time, mm. and, and necessarily the... They're not even really necessarily talking about the... The, the impact of, of that whole thing in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. They are literally arguing, were the Beatles bigger than Jesus? Right. And and a, a couple of the talking heads say, yes, yes, they were. <laughs> um, yes, was, no doubt. Yeah. It was, uh, Andy, Andy Peebles and Simon yes. Napier-Bell both very much come down on the side of yes. Yes, mm. the Beatles were bigger than Jesus Christ. Yeah. Um, which, which, is, which is untrue. <laughs> of course, they, they weren't. They still aren't. Jesus is still doing decent numbers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he is. Yeah, he's still going strong. Yeah. 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 And fair play to him. You know. Absolutely. Although, to be fair to him, we're not currently running a podcast about him. So, really, arguably, who is bi- who's bigger? True. Yeah. Jesus Films podcast. What can we get for that? Last Temptation of Christ? What can we get? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Films... Starring about or inspired by Jesus Christ, <laughs> arguably all, all of them. <laughs> if you're going to go down the inspired, wow, you know. that's a lot of ground to cover. Yeah. I'm glad we chose the Beatles. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, but, but the the weird thing about uh, how that whole issue gets discussed then is this was a point that was solved at the time. Yeah, like John and John Lennon was forced to make an apology. We know about um, about contextualizing his comments. All of which ring true in terms of, you know, we were talking about the actual the, the church in terms of, you know, popularity with the youth at the time. So, that. so there's no need to discuss this point, right? Mm. I just feel like it's, it's you know, covering, it's covering our ground. And I, and I feel like there's probably a bit of a problem I have with how this documentary doesn't know how much to, uh, how, how much it wants its, its interviewees to give genuine insight mm. and how much it wants it to just retread the same old stories and the same old um, uh, ground in order to tell the, the story that most of us Beatles fans are already familiar with. 
Yeah, I suppose. It, yeah, perhaps it wants its talking heads to actually just walk us through the narrative. Some of the talking heads are sort of more insightful than others. Uh, but yeah, in a structural sense, maybe that's what they're there to do, which is weird considering that actually it's narrative is kind of all over the place, as we said, mm. and it's not really taking, it doesn't have to take you through it in a sort of linear chronological fashion, but it needs to pick an approach. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't really do that. I, don't it, think. I, th- I think, by the way, that really gets pulled into focus when I think it's um, uh, Simon Napier-Bell. Yeah. Um, who uh, at one point he's telling a story and he actually says, and it includes it in the film where he literally says, um, are you asking me, do you want me to just tell yeah. the story? You asked me about the story, you want me to tell the story? You want me to tell the story? Okay, yeah. fine. And he just does it, right? And it's like, that's <laughs> quite clearly then there's there's a, um, a a call that's been made there by whoever's behind the camera to be like, no, 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 I want you to tell the story that clearly you know and I know has been told hundreds of times before. Yeah, yeah. Although, actually, that is not a story that I'd heard before. Oh, and, and to be fair, also not one I had either, but, but this it, is the answer phone one, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so this is Simon Napier-Bell, is one of the more interesting talking heads in it. So he, he was someone I was aware of who had been a sort of music manager in the 70s and 80s. I knew he'd managed Wham! and uh-huh. lots of other bands who I can't remember, but you, you would immediately recognise. Um I, I didn't realise he was an associate or a friend of Brian's uh, at all. So his his input was really, really interesting. And yeah, he tells a story about on the weekend that Brian died, when we know he'd sort of driven up uh, to a friend's house in the country and then sort of decided to come home quite abruptly. And Simon Napier-Bell had gone on holiday and he had come back to lots and lots of uh, increasingly sort of desperate uh, voice messages from Brian on his answer phone, uh, which is a really sad story, and um, and it's it, it, and it's affecting, and it's new. I didn't didn't know it before because, I, as I say, I didn't know of Simon Napier Bell as an associate of his. Mm. Um, but but you're right; that is an odd way to frame it. You know, you, you get a lot of documentaries now where every, every true crime Netflix documentary now starts with main talking head comes in sits down at the chair sort of adjusts themselves yes that's right adjusts yeah. their microphone says right so are we ready then and it's um what do you is it like a verite style or yeah yeah, like that's right, that, yeah you know or that yeah. thing where you see uh they're talking to camera but then you also see another camera that is filming yes the, the camera that's the, filming you, them and, and showing the b-roll as, as well as yeah, yeah, yeah and showing you the mechanics of the thing uh the, this documentary doesn't do that Except for that one bit. Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Very. Very strange. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, I. I feel like there's a couple of things I want to pick up on that, but one thing, the last point I wanted to make about this Scassagun approach uh, that the documentary has with its subject matter uh, is the very, very end, mm-hmm. and I think it's worth calling that out now because I think it is so bizarre. I think. I, I think I watched this film. Um thinking that this is broadly a collection of anecdotes from uh, August 1966, apparently, through to uh, tail end of 1967. Yep. Right. Um, none of... We, and that encompasses the, uh, the, the approach to, the recording of, and the subsequent release of Sgt. Pepper, yep. but isn't focused just on that period. So when we talk about the title of the film being um, 
50 years ago, Sergeant Pepper and beyond. I guess, arguably, the film is doing that because it's it's stretching the, the time period either side of, 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 of that without really giving a huge amount of focus on the actual release itself. Yeah. But then it... it I feel like it doesn't really know how to end because the Beatles' career continues, obviously, beyond this release. So it reaches a point after talking through several important factors in the the career where it gets to the end of the documentary and the only way it knows how to end is on a text screen, which says, and I I took a picture, which says, uh, out of nowhere, this does feel like out of nowhere, um, it says... 538 days after the release of Sgt. Pepper, the Beatles released a double album containing 30 brand new songs in a plain white sleeve. It went straight to number one right across the globe. Mm. That's odd. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's odd to then, so, so to have that detail at the end suggests that, that in some way everything contained in the documentary had that as its end goal or yes. had that as a purpose. It's like, you know, like, yeah. it, it's taken up like, the trope of like a biopic or a documentary where you know it, like it would have, it would say like, um, you know, she went on to win the Nobel Prize right. or, yeah, or yeah. like he broke the land speed record four times <laughs> in his life or, you know, <laughs> or like, or um, Sam Beckett never made it home. <laughs> you know? Right, right. You know, there is, like you expect the text at the end to be the point at which everything's been working towards. Yeah. And um, uh, and it's really odd that they just like just decided to to chuck in this sort of um, uh, reference to the White Album, completely missing Magical Mystery Tour in the process. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I don't know. Just another illustration of of why um, why the, why the film doesn't really feel like it knows what it's what it's doing, all its purposes. No, uh, yeah, and I think. Um... This is perhaps the problem with a documentary about an album in the, the middle of a band's career. So if it was a documentary about Hamburg, or if it was a documentary about Please Please Me, then it could, as its card at the end, could say, the Beatles went on to be the biggest band in exactly. the world. Yeah. Or, in, as I think I'm right in saying, Get Back finishes with um, After the Rooftop and then the... Uh, and then the bits they record in the studio afterwards. Does it? Maybe I'm wrong about this. In my mind, it's got a thing at the end that basically says this would be the last time, the last public performance the Beatles ever gave. Yes. And they split up. Yeah, Yeah, double check. I think the uh, the thing that you mentioned in your review of this was that uh, arguably this makes for a decent sequel to Eight Days a Week, The Touring Years. The Ron Howard documentary. Oh, I did say that. That was yeah. clever, wasn't it? It yeah. was clever. Yeah, well yeah. done. Yeah, yeah. thank you. No, I don't want to give you too much credit Thanks. because <laughs> because actually, what the film does uh, that you fail to mention <laughs> <laughs> was actually there's a significant overlap with the end of mm. of, of, of those touring years. Um, but but immediately you have uh, a clear difference between the approaches of the documentaries because eight days a week, the touring years sets out its story and this is what we are going to cover. Yeah. And actually Sergeant Pepper and Beyond is 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 mostly in terms of time dedicated to about Sergeant Pepper's. Yeah. But but no, like it extends way beyond that like, like includes so many other chapters of what we consider to be different segments of the Beatles' career within it that it doesn't really have a uh, an angle, a clear angle that yeah. the film is trying to to um, 
uh, to shed light on. Yeah, and actually, I mean, that ending, it's also frustratingly easy to fix as well. It's just yes. you, you change that card to be Sergeant Pepper has gone on to be, yes. the, the, you know, and it has sold this many copies. And it, you know, and exactly it doesn't even, doesn't even mention that, right? It doesn't even mention yeah. how the the actual numbers that are that, that that quantify its success. Yeah, and it's, it sort of seems to feel like it should give a sense of closure, where actually it doesn't. You know, mm. like like the, the the film about the organised crime gang that just always ends when it's based on real people that always ends with the prison sentences everyone received, right? It gives it, yes, exactly it, it, that. Yes, it gives a gives a sense of closure. Yes, like this is this is what happened to everyone. This guy went into witness protection. This guy got twenty five years. This guy died in prison. You know, fine. Uh, but um, the um, but this I don't know. It doesn't. Yeah, I think it just it, it seems to think that it should tie everything up, and it doesn't need to because it's a story people know. Mm. I mean, then again, you know, if it's a story everyone knows, then why why do a documentary about it? You need to. But there needs to be some concession to the idea that an audience is seeing this information for the first time. To be fair, and, and I and I and I, I feel like I'm I'm trying to make allowances for that because I think there is an argument that the documentary uh, covers a lot of old ground. Yeah, but arguably that's only old ground because we already know it, and yeah. there is you know, and there is a uh, there is a justifiable reason to bring old stories together if there is a coherent through line that makes sense for those stories to hang together to yeah. tell a narrative yeah and yeah. i think the problem this film doesn't have a clear narrative yeah there yeah. is a collection of you know like you you might as well like you know it's like it's, it is basically a beatles anecdotes greatest hits <laughs> of, of yeah. that particular period yeah yeah hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank linkedin helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role in a given month over 70% of linkedin users don't even visit other leading job sites so start looking in the right place with linkedin you can hire professionals like a professional post your free job on linkedin.com/people today millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds salads generally for most people are the easy button right for me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And going back to the original point about Obviously, the film doesn't have the rights to play the music, um, and and I I do think that that is why the film largely is unfocused because it 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 clearly is trying to do something that it wasn't allowed to do. Yeah. Therefore, should it have been made? <laughs> like, I don't want. I don't. You know, there's a lot of a lot of talented people who have come together to make a film. Yeah. Um, I I don't want to suggest they shouldn't have bothered. Right, but right. I think yeah. that I, I I guess there's a larger question around whether or not um, any documentary about a set uh, selection of music um, can do a 
good enough job or can do what it's set out to if it can't actually illustrate the point it's trying to make with the music in question. Yeah, very true. Uh, and I think um, it's not so much like, you know, should they have bothered making it? But I mean, it's more just, we should have been retooled to, yeah. f- to fit those circumstances. So what it, that, what it sort of half does and half doesn't do is um, you think about sort of, I don't know, v- VH1 classic albums or something like <laughs> that, where it, 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 here's this album and they're not necessarily, not necessarily talking uh, track by track, you know, uh, from from number one to the last one, but they are going through the songs and illustrating that with the music itself. Yeah. So there are bits in it. So there are songs it does talk about. Um, there are songs it ignores completely. But I, th- I think if you think about the sort of you know less stupid to say that any song on Sergeant Pepper is lesser known but if you think about sort of like <laughs> Lovely Rita or Good Morning Good Morning yeah. you know they're not songs that absolutely everybody knows um, they don't discuss those quite so much but that's... there are loads of songs they don't discuss right? yeah, I yeah. mean they, they, they talk through they talk through obviously the conception of Sergeant Pepper as a as a concept obviously yeah. Yeah. they talk about Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds talk about Day in the Life yeah. um, being being for the benefit of Mr. Kite. Yep. Um, but but that's oh, and within without you, right? So and yep. we should talk about that as well. But yep. um, but that's it. Like they don't really like if a film that is um, trying to uh, uh, coincide with an anniversary, like you're you're you know it, it should be in some way paying tribute to the the the, the timeliness of its release. Mm. Um, it doesn't dig into the, the the album and the songs. You know, no, it's, no, it's very no. much more concerned with the Beatles' career and them as people than it is about the actual product of the album. Yeah, and, and I think, um, it, yeah, and I think at, at, at the point where it knows it, it can't play any of the songs, uh, probably the thing to do was new creative approach. Yeah. This is a film about the Beatles in nineteen sixty-seven. Yeah, you know, and um, and talk about the same grounds <clears throat> trodden by. So one of the talking heads is Steve Turner, who wrote the the book Beatles '66, which is excellent. Um, he, you know, and he he gives lots and lots of good insight. Maybe the whole film should have been about that period. So he's talking about stopping touring in '66, um, and sort of goes on until sort of the early '67, and at least kind of sets the scene for what would come next. Because I think it, they, they should have maybe picked, uh, rather than focus so much on the album itself, uh, picked a specific thing to talk about. Um, I think, you know, because there's just lot, there's lots and lots of the interesting little things they were getting up to that year. I think sort of Magic Alex was turning up and they yeah. went off to Greece to see if they could buy an island and stuff like that. And this sort of lo- lovely sort of um, communist utopia idea they were thinking about. Uh, maybe you can't get a whole documentary out of that, but I mean, I mean, uh, but also like, if a documentary is commissioned to coincide with the 50th anniversary of Sgt. Pepper, mm-hmm. and you don't have the rights to the music, yeah, make a film about the impact of Sgt. Pepper, right, right. Like make make a film about um, uh, what led to Sgt. Pepper. Do the before or the after. Yeah, don't do all of it and in between. Yeah, and and not really land any of it. Yes, 
No, I, I think I think that's fair. <laughs> yeah. fair your, your prognosis is correct. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Okay, concurred. Um, uh, shall we talk about the selection of talking heads that are included in in the film? Yeah. Um, who uh, Who do we have? First of all, we have got a. Uh, I feel like I'm introducing them on Celebrity Squares. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have got first up <laughs> Philip Tonight's Norman. Head, I'm going to be. <laughs> uh, so we, what it does have, uh, one of its big plus points is it has it has a very good array of like very reputable Beatle authors. So yeah. I mean, there, there will be people who have sort of differing opinions about uh, about different authors, of course, um, but they are all pulled from generally what you might think of as the cream of the crop. Uh, okay. in, in terms of people who have written uh, significant or, or well thought of books, so the only signif- really really significant one who is missing is Mark Lewison. Um, other than that, you have Ray Connolly. Um, there's Philip Norman, who uh, at the time might have been a slightly controversial choice because he'd written a John Lennon biography and a book called Shout, in which he uh, is very very uh, pro Lennon anti-McCartney in that sort of old-fashioned way that people used to think about them, of sort of Lennon being the uh, the, the avant-garde one and uh, McCartney being more lightweight. Uh, there is Steve Turner, as I mentioned, who wrote the Beatles 66 book. Uh, there's Hunter Davis, who is uh, the only official uh, Beatles biographer, a biography of the band. Um Maybe that's about it. So those yeah. are those are the the Beatles authors slash journalists. Yeah. Um, you also have um, uh, you got Julia Baird, obviously, as John Lennon's sister. Yeah. Um, you have um, Bill Harry. Yeah. Is is someone who uh, is credited as <laughs> not even his job title, but is just credited as Mersey Beat newspaper. Right. He is Mersey Beat newspaper. Yes. Yeah, that is his. Yeah. That is his. Pole. Yeah, so he was a uh, he was at art college with Lennon and Sutcliffe, I think, and then he founded the Mersey Beat uh, newspaper, which, uh, which sort of chronicled the Liverpool music scene at the time. It's the place where John used to have a column, and he wrote that article about uh, where they got the name Beatles uh, off a man on a flaming pie. Yeah, yeah. So he's in this. So I mean, he is. It, it, it's funny because I think maybe at the time when I first saw this, I thought, well, he's a good source for the early days. But how much does he know about Sergeant Pepper? But he was in London at that time. You know, he'd sort of moved down and he was sort of working in PR in London. Mm. So I think you know, and I think he was still uh, he was still seeing them a fair oh, bit yeah, so on the scene. It. Yeah, we we also have um, Barbara O'Donnell, who's Brian Epstein's secretary at the time. Yeah. Uh, there's also Tony Bramwell, who's credited as um, NEMS uh, slash Apple Records. Yeah. Who he? He um, is a, a, an old school friend of the Beatles who then works as their road manager, I think, alongside Neil Aspinall, and then worked for NEMS and Apple in sort of various capacities, I think. So he's he's a very good source. Uh, and also one of the probably, I mean, to be fair, all of the all of the interviews in the documentary provide uh, their own unique insight that that is actually just uh, I think does lend credibility to the film. I don't, there's there's not much I don't think in terms of the interview matter in the documentary that feels like it's lightweight. All of it feels like it adds something. Yeah. But there are some people that 
some some of the talking heads that I feel like what they contribute is actually uh, I don't want to say more interesting, but maybe of more value. I think he's one of the people that when he's on screen, he's like, oh, actually, this is something that that feels like it's um, this is uh, has more weight to it. Yeah, I feel like. yeah, um, I think that's probably fair. I, I think like it's. Um, uh, so Steve, Steve Diggle from Buzzcocks. I was going to get to him. Yes. Yeah. So he's yeah. one of the talking heads, and um, uh, it, it, so he, it, there are a couple of things he says about the dynamic of being in a band, which is sort of interesting and insightful. Because he's in the Buzzcocks, so he knows about right. being in a band. Right. Exactly. Does I'll, his insight extend beyond that? <laughs> not, not particularly. But like, I don't, I don't want to be unfair to him because I mean, the guy is basically there because he's a, a, a big and knowledgeable Beatles fan. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, a, a lot of people are big and knowledgeable Beatles fans. I I, I felt like there was quite a lot of talking heads in it. Uh, you could have uh, you could have removed Steve Diggle and not mm. not really lost anything. I, I'm not trying to be unkind to him, but there, there is no there is no great reason for him to to be in the documentary. But I, I will say that you don't punish people for uh, being big and knowledgeable Beatles fans <laughs> and. <laughs> and for them God. to <laughs> and for them to feel like they are entitled to be, to be included in some kind of Beatles related media outlet, yeah, yeah. Uh, we should take a long, hard look. At <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh God, I've blown the whole thing. Apart. <laughs> <laughs> this is the final episode. <laughs> we're, we're done. It's quite good. Let's pull the plug right now. Well, we had a good run. <laughs> Um, no, fair enough. Okay, so well, I, I think I think that's you know it's it's an interesting selection of um, of, of talking heads. In that, I think that I, I feel like whenever you know, in in the context of Beatles documentaries, it has to be said that there is there are a lot of Beatles documentaries out there that are terrible. Yes, that that are very cheaply made. Yeah, with um, you know, um, it, it, we, we've with names that are far less, far, far less credible than the ones you just listed there. Definitely. Like it'll be, you know, Paul Ross. That's the way it came to mind, but he tends to be on those things. Right? I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah right? Yeah. Um, uh, and actually, this is a really good, solid selection. I, I feel like a newcomer uh, to the documentary might be hoping for Paul and Ringo. Right, right. yeah. Um, and, and, and that's just not the case. So being yeah. realistic, actually, these this selection... Uh, is actually a very very credible section of uh, of of people to talk about this subject matter. Yeah, I would say so. And and actually, uh, when you said uh, you know that there are lots and lots of very bad Beatles documentaries out there, it reminded me of one the the um, we sidebar very briefly to talk about the worst Beatles documentary I've ever seen. I mean, do you want to sidebar about that, or do you want to cover it in this entirely different episode? No, I never want to think about it ever again. Um, then it, go proceed. It was um, you know anyone who has Amazon Prime video will will know that there is not an awful lot of quality control in terms of what they let on there. So I think they must have deals where sort of independent filmmakers uh, can get sort of a hundred dollars or something, you know, for sure. ha- having their thing on there. And so uh, when I first had access to Prime Video, I did a Beatles. Searched the sort of first keyword I searched and came across a documentary called um, a, a, a Beetle in Benton, Illinois. What, sorry, what was it called? A Beetle in Benton. So um, Benton, Illinois is the little town where George's sister lived. Uh, she'd emigrated. So George was the first Beetle ever to visit America. He went before they toured America because his sister went there. 
And so he went out to visit her just after the band had started, but before anyone knew who they were. So mm. maybe in 63, 64. And so this is a whole documentary about the people who were there at the time. It's, it's, and so they've all got anecdotes about it. And the worst one by far was that uh, a guy said, well, there was a rock and roll band, a local rock and roll band who were playing. And we sort of went along to see them in this diner or whatever it was. And George got up on stage with them. Then they interviewed the guitarist from this rock and roll band from 1963. And he says, um, yeah, but the funny thing was, after the show, uh, I was sitting there uh, just sort of playing this little riff on the guitar. And he starts playing the riff to Ticket to Ride. <laughs> and George came over to me and he said, hey, what's that you're playing? And then, lo and behold, two years later, and I was like, mate, that isn't... It, it, it is such an obvious lie. Yeah, it, like George didn't even write that riff. I don't. I think John wrote that riff anyway. But it, yeah. but in any case, like it, it's just an easily, easily provable lie <laughs> that you just let in your documentary. And I, and I do think um, that that uh, one of the things about Beatles documentaries, I think uh, there is a, an obligation to get the facts right. You know, this is yes. exactly why oh, Mark, Mark Lewis yeah. is writing these books. Yeah, that this is important, not just cultural history, but just history in general. And it is important to get these things right so that sort of misinformation doesn't spread too much. You know. Are there any instances here, uh, he says knowingly, <laughs> um, in this film in particular, where uh, there are some statements made that feel like they, they need some kind of cooperation? Funny you should say that, mate. <laughs> I thought um, you might find that funny. Uh, there is well, I mean, this is something that I mentioned in the review I wrote five years ago, and I will say that I am not, uh, I'm not quite so sure of my ground as I was five years ago. But so uh, Jenny Boyd, who's Patty Boyd's uh, sister and therefore George's sister-in-law at the time, um, she so she claims credit for having come up, uh, not invented the phrase, but read the phrase "within you, without you" in a book, and then called George, and uh, George says, "Oh yeah, that's good." Um, that that does not chime with George's recollection of writing the song, uh, but it also, it, which, but it doesn't directly contradict it. It's sure. fair to say. So in his uh, "I Me Mine" book, where he gives very very brief uh, uh, attention to each song he wrote and how he wrote it, right. he says that he wrote the song on a, the melody or the tune on a harmonium at uh, Klaus Vormann's house in Hampstead hmm. and then he says I, f- I finished off the lyrics later right. so that doesn't directly contradict what Jenny Boyd said it no. may be that you know later on he got that call and then he put the lyrics in I don't know but it, it but it's not it, it's not really his account of writing uh, I, I will say that um, there is something to be said that, and, and again this doesn't directly contradict the, the claim that is made there by Jenny Boyd but it's interesting that for all of the Beatles history that you have consumed as a fan over many, many years, that hasn't come up before. Right. Right. I'm assuming that that hasn't been sort of, that hasn't been suggested before in, in any other documentary or, or, or by anyone else other than Jenny Boyd. Well, I guess, I guess it's the question, right? Yeah. I mean, this, uh, but uh, by the way, I mean, let me be clear. I'm not saying for a second that I think she's lying. Oh, it sounds or, like it. Or... <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like it. Uh, let's see if we get her on an interview. Yeah, like, exactly. Uh, yeah. Like, like, re- I heard that later on she jammed the opening riff to "Ticket to Ride." <laughs> <laughs> no, 
Now that is true, <laughs> but, but um, uh, it, yeah, I, I'm not saying for a minute that she is lying. I, I think there you can see it in the in the Beatles' own recollections. I mean, you know, maybe George is misremembering it. We don't, we yeah, don't that's know, true. Because, yeah. because their their memories are not. Um, but no one's memories from around that time are completely reliable. And also, to be fair, like uh, Jenny Boyd, uh, when she's talking about that exact moment, talks a lot about how much pot they were smoking at the time. So, yeah, like, yeah. So her recollection, you know, absolutely might be more accurate than than George's own. Yeah, uh, but also arguably, everyone's recollection at that time is questionable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and also, it was fifty years ago, right? You know, I mean, you you, you will have forgotten a lot of things now. Um, that you know, I, I, it, so it may, it may be she's uh, misremembered it. Um, it and it may be that um, as we all do, you kind of take a scenario that's in your head that didn't, didn't quite happen that way, and then in a few years' time, it's solidified into your head as something that did happen that way. It may be that it actually did happen. It actually did happen exactly as she said. Um, this is the thing. Like, uh, we're obviously not in a position to make that judgment. But I, I mean, the point, the only point I'm making in terms of how the film is made is that it it, it needs to interrogate things like that mm. a, a bit more. I I think it's Beatles history is just littered with people who claim responsibility for various little things. There's always yeah. a guy who's like, oh, I. I delivered John Lennon a wardrobe, and he said, "Oh, what, what kind of wood is that?" And I said, "Oh, it's Norwegian." You know, <laughs> like it's just loads and loads of people uh, who've just got these li- little stories where they just pl- claim perfectly normal conversation to have. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, um, you know, and um, uh, it, it, you know, D- Donovan being a great example, of course. Yes, but, of course, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I just think it's important to get those things right. It isn't always possible to get those things right. Uh, I just don't think that the film made quite uh, enough of an effort. I do agree with you that when it comes to what the statements that the Talking Heads uh, make feel like they should be backed up by some kind of archival evidence. Yes. And where it's not, it makes the film seem lazy. Yes. And, and, and actually, you know, there, there would be a perfectly reasonable view, I think, that the film isn't uh, a great deal better than um, some of those other Beatles documentaries you mentioned that are available on, on Amazon Prime yeah. to watch. Other than the fact that it has a fairly credible Talking Head selection yeah. and was released at the time of the 50th anniversary. Yeah. I feel like those two things give it a higher profile but otherwise it's sort of been made with, with probably the same attention to detail as some of the other documentaries that we've seen that would that we otherwise trash no i think i think it's a bit better than that to be you fair. reckon but, but uh it, yeah it is certainly not on on the level of um you know it, it, just any of those <laughs> yeah right just yeah it's certainly not on the level of that but you know there, there is a there is a base level of um Beatles documentaries that you'll see if you search on a streaming service, it will come up, mm. and you can just tell from the the uh, the the image it's using. I mean, there was one that I can't remember what it was, but like um, that I started watching, and just immediately because of the talking head, the talking heads were you know sort of Paul Ross or whoever you know that that kind of <laughs> that, that kind of level. I'm sorry, Paul Ross, but, you know, but it's like but you, you are a byword for this. He's, you know, he's not listening. He's listening. Hundred percent listen to. Yeah, he listens to everything. <laughs> um, but um, but you know, it was 
it, it kind of reminded me of do you remember when the Beatles anthology came out in 1995 yeah. and ITV did there was like a half hour program that they showed just before the first episode I don't remember that or no. maybe the week before the first episode no no sorry what it was it was uh, before the debut of the Free as a Bird video oh on, okay on oh yes no I do know about that yeah and they had a half hour program whose premise was weren't the Beatles great and and it just had talking heads Bruce Forsyth was one I remember Lulu Noel Gallagher was one and I'm sure there are other people as well but it, it those was, three are enough how can you better yeah, Bruce exactly. Forsyth Lulu and Noel Gallagher well it's the Holy Trinity isn't it <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, so you know Lulu was kind of there at the time to be fair and, I mean to be fair that that way you know let's let's say we'll get round to that at some point right? yeah but yeah. but um that is doing what it is set out to yes okay yeah. right that is like what you know weren't the Beatles great because this is on the cusp of uh, a recognized resurgence of an appreciation of the Beatles yeah. at that time 95 right uh I, I think uh I think here it's a little bit different we're, we're talking about a film that was made only five or released only five years ago yeah I do recognize you saying that the film is of a better quality and and, and a better standing um, than some of the other awful Beatles documentaries out there. I recognise you saying that. <laughs> I will challenge you <laughs> with one particular talking head. Okay. I feel like you know which one. Hunter oh. Davies at one point talks about Brian Epstein's I guess he talks about his personal life um, at a time when the Beatles started to uh, have less of a need for him. Yes. And there is a section in the documentary that discusses how Brian Epstein then, without having as much to do with the Beatles, I guess there's a suggestion there that he went a little bit off the rails or started taking more drugs and started to, um, I guess, retreat into himself a little bit. Yeah. Um, I feel like that is a perfectly reasonable part of the narrative to present. Yeah. I feel like the language that Hunter Davis uses yeah. when he talks about this yeah. is objectionable. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the first thing he says is Brian Epstein is, is uh, he's a homosexual. Yeah. And he says that like it's a, 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 an excuse for what then Hunter Davis is then about to tell in this in this part of the interview. Right, he says it as if like, well, I might as well say it. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, 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 exactly. Like, well, I mean, like, he's a homosexual, so you know what I'm about to say yeah, next, so right? Which is yeah. horrible, right? Yes. Horrible. Yes, it is. But then he goes on to say, like, he makes he he makes the claim that um, he fancied John Lennon. He makes the claim that um, he fancied John Lennon because he was a, a butch boy. I believe is the phrase he uses. Yeah. Um, he says, um, this is, a, again, a phrase that he used, um, that Brian Epstein went out gay hunting. Yeah. Um, and he makes uh, and he makes claims about how um, he would... He, I think it's something along the lines of like him liking the challenge of trying to seduce heterosexual uh, men. Yeah. Or, or, in fact, he uses the word boys, right? Yeah. So, um, and he would get them drunk. And um, he would get them drunk... Uh, try to seduce them they would then uh, react badly to this beat him up yeah. and that was something that he enjoyed because he was a masochist yeah now I will say there are obviously lots of stories and 
rumours uh, about Brian Epstein and this part of his personal life, I personally don't feel like I know enough about... Uh, I don't feel like I know enough to be able to sift the truth from the sort of salacious gossip. Yeah. Um, but I do feel like at this point, the documentary has taken a weird tonal shift. Yes. Into sort of, not just gossip, but also into a weird sort of verging on um, homophobic area. Yeah. Just because of the way that he has presented that piece of information as part of the documentary. Yeah. Yeah, and I think you, you know, I, I mean, that that certainly could have, well, it could have done with some editing, as a charitable way to put it. Um, it yeah, the the tone is kind of quite unpleasant. I I think the things he's talking about, uh, I, I I'm not I'm not going to stray into this territory too much because I I don't feel like I know enough of the facts about Brian's personal life. Um, I it, what I do remember from what I've read. I don't know about the thing of sort of pursuing straight boys. I do know that he got uh, beaten up and mugged um, by people he thought were sexual partners. Um, there seems to be a suggestion, I'm not saying it's 100% true, there seems to be a suggestion that he did enjoy uh, the the sort of danger um, that, you know, that there was a sort of frisson with the danger. But, I mean, to, to be honest, even the fact that I've entertained this I've sort of annoyed myself because it's relevant. Yeah. There isn't any reason for Hunter Davis to be going into it, much less us going into it. Really, and, and that's the point. Yeah. I, I think that's the. It's, it's more about the fact that the film decides to include not just uh, not just that part of what they think is relevant to the story, but it's that they've allowed the and I say the the, the director Alan G. Parker right, has allowed. Uh, the, that particular excerpt from that interview to be included within the film. Yeah. Uh, so let's move on to something more positive then. And by more positive, I mean something that's also negative, but we can uh, criticise it uh, and feel much more positive about ourselves in doing so. <laughs> well, that's the main thing, isn't it? <laughs> Why else are we here? <laughs> um there are uh, littered throughout the documentary, and littered is always a good um, <laughs> always, <laughs> it's always a good word to use when you you know you're going to talk about something particularly bad. <laughs> um, littered throughout the documentary yeah. uh, are um, reconstructions yes. of, of of some of the songs um, that aren't really um, prevalent enough in the documentary for it to feel like it's consistent. Yeah. Um, but also feel like they are removed enough to feel like there's been some kind of creative choice in making them happen. Yeah, um, yeah. There, there are some, there are reconstructions in the sense that they all, they, I suppose, they are kind of uh, literal depictions of of lyrics. Hmm. So there's a pretty nurse selling poppies from a tray. There's uh, Eleanor Rigby, people putting flowers on her grave. I think, hmm. and lovely Rita, the meter maid. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, so. All of the you see these very fleetingly because so a lot of the time all a documentary needs when it's talking heads are telling you the information they need you need to know, um, all, all, all they need something to put on the screen while that happens. Yeah, and um, depending on how much footage you've got, you know you see a lot on sort of the cheaper true crime documentaries where somebody's talking and then they get a picture of the serial killer. And then they just very slowly focus in on their eyes. 
you know, just mm. go, just zoom in on their eyes. Um, <laughs> and that is just to take up the screen space while someone is talking. Yeah. Um, it, it, in this instance, um, you can do a documentary of reconstructions. They, they were quite old hat for quite a while, and they're, they're a bit more fashionable now. You see the Netflix documentaries use them a lot more. I think since about 20, I remember in about 2012 when documentaries like uh, The Imposter, like Bart Layton, started making yes. uh, uh, those films. And uh, uh, reconstructions in documentaries were very much sort of Channel 5 territory. Yeah, and, true, and yeah. he And he really brought them back and they seemed to become a lot more popular. But, you know, so it's perfectly fine to do uh, a documentary of reconstructions in it uh, or sort of it, things illustrated by actors in some way. But, uh, but you either do it or you don't. Uh, this has, I would say, a, a total of about a minute's footage in yeah. the entire film. I, I would argue like 25 seconds. Yeah. Um, and it, it, and so it presumed that you would have had to pay actors or something to do that and, uh, and you know, and people to film it and everything. Um, when you could have just got a photo of, yeah. of Ringo Starr and, and focused in on his eyes very slowly. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, um, but, um, but you know, you can. That would be amazing. Can you imagine? Like, yeah, <laughs> just yeah, a yeah. sinister tone that that would just automatically adopt. Yeah. Um, um, I, I, but the weird thing is, like, I, I don't even. I, I feel like there's a lot that is said, you know, uh, in the interviews that uh, then cuts to archival footage, which obviously makes sense. That's how documentaries work. Mm-hmm. Um, the three examples you gave there, um, I don't feel like anything's needed. At all, like no. you, you know, you, the, the the I actually feel like I was going to mention earlier that I think that I think I believe it's Steve Turner who makes a very good point when he talks about um, why the Beatles decided to stop touring, which is he he basically says that the uh, the songs that they wanted to write at the time and they were releasing at the time just weren't good for live gigs. You know, they were still touring after Revolver came out, but there were playing songs from before that album and before Rubber Soul even because yep. audiences wanted songs they could jump around to and dance to and that kind of stuff. Yep. Uh, which is a very good point. It's actually, I, I will say, isn't one that I hear often when I'm when I'm you know, yeah. reading up on or, or um, listening to uh, Beatles stuff. Yeah. And he makes the point that, uh, or he illustrates that point by talking about Eleanor Rigby. Yep. Uh, Eleanor Rigby is the kind of song that Beatles had just released but they couldn't play that live, not only because it's a moodier song and an audience won't dance to that, but also there was, I think, I believe he makes the point that there is the idea that it has a bit of a, a, a somber element to it because it talks about being in a churchyard, putting flowers on the grave and et cetera. Yeah. You don't need to then show someone in a churchyard <laughs> putting flowers on a grave, no. I believe. Like the point stands on its own. Like, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. There, right. There's no need to cut, and I believe that's the case as well. When they cut to discussion on Penny Lane, when they discuss very, very, very briefly, they talk about lovely Rita. Yep. So it it, it feels completely uh, arbitrary. Uh, the, these these sort of very short five second snippets of of recreations. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense because because I mean it would make sense if uh, if you. If you thought it was a reaction to like, oh, I don't have footage here. I need to fill this in with something because for all the other songs, you know, they've got something to put on the screen. 
uh, like I say, just a, just a still photo or a bit of uh, video footage of the Beatles getting out of a car and going into Abbey Road, of which exactly. there's loads and loads. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And you, you could even you could repeat a bit from earlier on in the documentary. I mean, that that happens a lot in the cheaper ones, right? The really cheap ones. Yeah, yeah, I know you mean. Yeah. Um, but um, recycled so just, archive footage. That yeah. Using again, exactly. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it, so it's just it, it's odd, and there's no there's no reason to put it in, and like. I don't know. Why, I, don't, I appreciate. I sound quite troubled by it. You know? <laughs> so really like, why is this happening? You know, but yeah, yeah. Um, but it is just the, the sort of thing I'll notice and then fixate on. It's just such a strange choice. It's, it's a, but it's a and it's a creative choice. Like work has gone into making that happen. Yeah, like it's yeah. not just you know it, it, it would be it would be different if they had a bunch of archive footage and they chose a weird clip to illustrate a point. Yeah. But they've gone out with a camera. Yeah. <laughs> and and hired actors like you say to do this. Yeah, it's more work. Yeah, and cost to do to put this sort of you know as you say twenty five seconds worth of footage in for, for extremely little value. Yeah, um, arguably no value. In fact, arguably negative value because we are now on this podcast talking about how it undermines. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, well, to be fair, we're the only two people in the world who are bothered about it. But, well, you know. I don't know. I don't know. We'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll Google it later. I did have a big question for you. Yeah. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, you are someone who has been consuming Beatles history for far, far longer than I have. And I wanted to get your sense of uh, how much did this documentary present to you something you hadn't uh, seen before or heard of before? Uh, a bit is the answer. There, okay. there, there was some stuff. Certainly there was some... And, and I mean, when it first came out as well, obviously, by the way, because I, yeah. I, I'm coming from the position of... Um, I, I've watched this now yeah. for this podcast yeah. and I don't feel like there's there's a huge amount that I haven't seen before but I don't know how much of that was because of the film and how much of it was, was already available before. Mm. So when you first saw it when it first came out in 2017 yeah. um, there were some elements of it that, that, that you hadn't seen before. Yeah, there, there was information in there that I didn't know before. So, so the Simon Napier Bell bit uh, as I was uh, talking about before uh, there was some footage that I hadn't seen before. Mm. It tends to—it's it, not particularly significant footage. It, there, certainly, there's the George hanging around with a load of guys with sitars. Um, I just sort of realised that isn't something I'd seen before. It's not—it's not massively significant. Um, I mean, the thing is, with any, any Beatles documentary, if it gives you anything you haven't seen bef- before, then it's been worth the two hours, as far as I'm sure. concerned. You know, you know, the the year before we'd had. Eight Days a Week, the Ron Howard documentary, which we mentioned earlier. And mm. that had certainly, uh, it's sort of slightly divisive in terms of its approach and certain stylistic choices, but, uh, it did have, uh, that story about them refusing to play to a segregated audience in, uh, Miami, I think it was, which was completely new on me and, yeah. uh, and absolutely is worth the price of entry, you know, just any new. Uh, information or footage. Um, there's also, to be fair, there's also uh, some archival footage here which I have seen before, but I never tire of seeing. Like, I, 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 yeah, I actually, to be fair, most of that's true about any of the Beatles. I, I never, sure. I never think, oh god, I've seen this a hundred times. Why are you showing me this? Like, it's right. always like as a fan, it's always um, fun to see. Yeah. Um, one of the things I wanted to pick up on you was uh, uh, with you, sorry, on you. <laughs> that was weird. Uh, one of the many elements they talk about in the film is uh, 
the LSD interview um, with Paul McCartney. Yeah. Um, I love watching that interview because I always see that as a a really good example of how Paul McCartney, even then at his very young age, was just really canny about media. Yeah, yeah. I I, I feel like in, in a way that we've only really started to recognize widely recently you know it, when we talk about now about you know um since 2016 the idea of fake news and stuff mm. the idea that the media itself has a responsibility in terms of all its reporting yeah uh in 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 that context re-watching that interview where paul mccartney is talking about um uh, where he's being called out on admitting to taking LSD mm. and he is then in turn calling out the journalist and saying, All right, you've asked me a question, I only want to be honest and the responsibility is with you to to decide whether or not to report that and spread that information. Yeah. I thought that that is unbelievably canny at that age and yeah. in that period of, of him to recognise that, that role that the media plays. Yeah, I mean, I agree with the, with everything you said. It was it really what, I mean, I've seen that clip before, but watching yeah. it again the other day, uh, I was really struck by, uh, that is an astonishing level of media literacy yeah. uh, for someone of that age and in that era to have. Um, someone who has had, this level of fame thrust upon him. Uh, bear in mind, there would have been so much. The press was an industry that you just respected in that in those in, exactly in, in that age. Yeah. And I think in the same way that politicians broadly were as well. Like sort of uh, journalists would sort of ask politicians questions and say, if it's not too impertinent a question to ask, would you mind telling us? Well, yes. you know, a, there's a, I noticed that a lot. There's there's journalists on the doorstep, and it's like, um, uh, you know, those, those wonderful moments where you just have members of the Beatles walking up some steps and the journalist is like, oh, hello, can I just have a word just for a moment? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone to speak. Right, exactly. Time. Yeah, and there was, a, yeah, I think people were just, um, yeah, it was, it was a profession to respect and be revered and just be very, very polite about, you know. Mm. And um, and Paul is basically there going, as you say, like, all I'm doing is telling the truth. And it, like, to recognise that it's not just him, but it is a media organisation that there is a, a, a wider sort of media landscape, industrial complex, if you like, <laughs> like that. That is, he, he he has these ideas in his head, yeah. Uh, in a way that I just don't think it is just astonishingly far sighted for him to be thinking that way, and so ahead of his time. Um, but yeah, I, I do think um, in terms of the way he dealt with and still deals with the media, he is a very very canny yeah. operator. And I don't mean to suggest that there's anything sort of underhand or duplicitous about the way he acts, but he's very, very aware. Of... He's very, very. He's very aware of his own image. I think it's very. Um, he likes to have control of his own image. Yes. And, and I always think about that story about the the journalist that turned up on his doorstep on the farm, and it gets often told around the the uh, recording of Ram uh, sessions or even the first party album. Yeah. Where um, he he threw a bucket of water and then instantly knew what that would mean uh, yeah, and yeah, had yeah. to chase after journalists and and then sort of negotiate. Uh, I, I feel like that's that again. I think is that he he's, he knows you can't imagine John Lennon going to that effort, right? Like right, there, there's right, right. The, yeah. he, Paul McCartney was always very aware of having to control his um, public image. Yes. Yeah. Very true. Uh, but yeah, I think that clip is really interesting for that. I think it's also. Um, his body language, I'm really struck by. He's he's in his 
he's in his own back garden at Cavendish Avenue. Right. Um, or at least I've always presumed that's the case. From when I've seen pictures of his back garden, it kind of looks like that. Um, and so, yeah, they're outside. It's summertime. So he, he presumably just invited this journalist in. We'll have a chat in the back garden. And he is completely in control of that interview. Mm. And there is a way he's sitting uh, where he's just, he's sitting back in his chair and he's kind of, he's kind of swinging from side to side a little bit. Mm. Um, and he's completely and utterly self-assured. And I think also, because um, from what I, I understand, I think maybe they say it in the documentary actually, that the, the other Beatles, John and George in particular, were a bit like, well, LSD was our thing. We yes. got there first. Why are you yeah. announcing it? Which is quite a funny schoolboy yes, way, way of thinking yeah. about the that, whole that's thing. The, the only I liked it first. The only time I've ever seen that interview has always been within the wider context of how John and George have been annoyed right. that, that he gave it. Right, right, right. Because I, th- I think especially because he, he was the last, he, he needed some convincing to do it. I yes, think. exactly. Yeah. And, and, it, and I think there's even a story about he only did it once. In fact, George is, is particularly biting when he talks about that in the anthology. Is I seem to remember, yeah, I seem to remember him being like even more, um, uh, yeah, just 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 a little bit. He's definitely got a grudge that he still holds yeah, about the yeah, whole thing. Yeah, yeah, but it's funny, isn't it? It's like you know, the the, the friend who's like who held out on doing the thing that everyone else had got into, you know, and then he then he does it, and then he's all, like he's in the newspapers. He was like, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, like Johnny LSD. Like, yeah. This is my thing, you know? like, yeah, and, exactly. uh, but. Uh, but that's quite Paul as well, actually. I don't. It, I mean, just to sort of, he has an awful lot of confidence and an awful lot of self assurance, and I don't, I don't think it would occur to him to be like, um, actually, maybe there's a better spokesperson in the Beatles for this. Yeah, no, not at know. all. No, but it, but I do think it's interesting uh, that uh, that. Paul, at the age of, I think, probably 25 then. Oh, it's insane. Is, that is, is crazy. Yeah, is, is, a, is far-sighted enough to be thinking in this way. It's, it's kind, yeah. it's kind yeah. of nuts. Really. In a way that I don't think, and this is probably doing the others a disservice, but I can't imagine the other Beatles being that, having the same having the same position. Yes, or, or or being as far-sighted enough to be able to argue the same thing. Yeah, I, th- I don't know. Actually, maybe John. I, I you can imagine John, particularly in lazy years, he seemed particularly insightful about about how his image was was created by and manipulated by media. I, I feel like he was very conscious of that. Yeah, well, but at, at that particular time, it felt like it, it just feels like a particularly it just feels like a very particularly modern argument to make, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Yeah, yeah. No, I think. I mean, certainly, John, John and Yoko, you know, sort of came up with the idea of well, let, let's sell peace like, mm. like what do they call it? Like dishwasher. So oh, it's not dishwasher, any dishwashers, but dish, like dish soap, right? Yes. And uh, you know, sell it like it's a product, and we're going to be in the papers anyway, whatever we do. So we might as well have a peace sign with us and yeah. ad- advertise this thing like it's a product. Um, so yes, I mean, they, they kind of knew how to use the media, but I, I, I don't think John was kind of would have thought about it in the same way Paul is in 1967. Yeah. Where, where he's questioning the relationship and the, and yeah. the actual dynamic of it. Yeah, yeah. We haven't talked about Pete Best in right. this documentary, which I, I, yeah. and I do feel like his inclusion here and the story that he tells in particular is, is particularly wonderful. And actually... Yeah. Uh, I don't know. You, you were saying before about how you know if a film offers new insights or a new story, uh, then it's well worth the, the two hours or however much money you need to pay to see it. Yeah. This is probably that moment for me because it's a really nice story that he tells. I don't know if it was 
known beforehand? I don't think it was. Actually, I remember, I remember when I saw it the first time, talking to a journalist after the film screening, who was a guy who used to write for The Enemy, whose name I didn't get. Um, and he said that, that, that the medals story that Pete tells was sort of new, new on him. Mm. And I think he said something about... I think maybe it may even have been advertised as such in press releases. It may oh, even wow. have said, and Pete Best is in it with a surprise new story or something like right, that. Okay. But certainly I didn't know that. He, he said, so the story is um, that it's his uh, granddad's medals, yep. is it, that, that actually are selected by uh, Neil Aspinall, I believe, actually um, uh, takes the, the medals um, uh, in tribute to be used on the cover of the Sgt. Pepper album yeah. that John Lennon then uses as part of his outfit or his costume yes. uh, as part of that shoot. Yeah. Um, and the way that Pete Best tells that, um, there's genuinely, uh, it's genuine emotion that you can tell that he's genuinely touched to know that um, uh, his family has a legacy that extends onto what is the you know biggest selling or greatest most popular album uh, of all time. Yeah, uh, it's really really heartwarming when he tells that story. Yeah, it's really nice that he has a connection with it as well. Yeah, because I I think probably when I first saw it, it had advertised that Pete Best was one of the talking heads, and I thought. What's he going to talk about with Sergeant Pepper? Yeah, and it, and he is only in it telling that story. For that, yeah, and then one bit at the end where he he gets like the last the last word in it, which is also very nice um, because he is a guy who, you know, obviously he, yeah, um, you know, he's he has not always been well served by uh, mm. by the Beatles story. I always thought it was lovely when when they released Anthology One and he finally got some money for everything. Yes. Yes. Um, that was a really nice. Uh, that was a, a really nice uh, story, but um, yeah, there's uh, there's affection in the way he tells that story. Uh, there's a connection to his mother as well, um, who would you know who would would have been long 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 gone by the time he told the story on the documentary, um, and uh, and you can see it kind of means something to him. And I wondered I wondered as well. As far as I'm aware, none of them had any contact with him other than mm. bumping into him backstage at some gig in the early days. And also, to so, be fair, the way he tells that story, they didn't even then at the time. It's, it feels like it's, it's Neil uh, who is the uh, go-between yes. to make that story happen. Yeah, not yeah. not that, that takes anything away from, from from how nice it is, but it feels like that is you know that's uh, he he was the instigator to, yeah. to um, liaise, I guess, uh, to to make that. That story happened for him. Yeah, and, and and I like also because they give him the last word, and because, it, and the, I forget what how he expresses it, but he basically says, you know, like every country in the world, um, knows this band and knows this album, and you know it's it, and you know I'm just grateful that I could be a very small part of it, and I like the fact he's sort of given the opportunity to. Uh, to give his information, you know, sort of state his case at the end, and uh, be be acknowledged as as a part of this story, which he is, um, mm. and and that he seems he seems uh, at ease with that. You know, yeah. he does. There's no bitterness in it. But I mean, maybe there is bitterness in him, but he doesn't he doesn't express any bitterness. So he doesn't seem to in public anymore, and he certainly doesn't in this documentary. I think they tied it up really nicely with him. 
and, and then I guess you know on that note it's it's good to put an end to our own small contribution to the success of Sergeant Hepburn the release of that album yeah by um, <laughs> by bringing this episode to a close yeah uh, we appreciate you listen to our episodes you can follow us on social media platforms uh, using the handle at Beatles Films Pod please feel free to give us a follow there please feel free to give us a review for this um, episode as well if you haven't already um, that would be greatly appreciated uh, otherwise we will see you again next week for another episode about another film thanks again and see you then see you then